chapter 3. We've been in here for the past few weeks, and uh, we'll be finishing up, Lord willing, next week. Uh, and we're in, a, we're in a really interesting spot. And as we're getting into this part here, we're going to see uh, a prayer of Habakkuk, and, uh, where God's trying to get his attention. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you felt like God was trying to get your attention, or someone was trying to get your attention, and how far they would go. Uh, I remember, this is years ago, but I remember sitting in, in fifth grade class with, uh, had a teacher named Miss Dolan. And we had a young man in the class with us, his name was Paul Yoder. And Paul didn't like being in school much. He was one of those kids that just didn't like being in school, sitting at a desk all day. He liked to be out doing different things. And this was a, a different era, stuff that you can't do in class now. But she would try to get his attention. And he would have a hard time listening, and he wouldn't pay attention. So finally, she was so frustrated one day with his lack of attention that she took an eraser from the chalkboard and flung it at his head from the front of the classroom, and it landed square on his head, left, and he woke right up, and he had this then mark for the rest, like a skunk, <laughs> for the rest of the classroom. And some of you might have experiences like that. I had another teacher that, uh, if you fell asleep in your class, and this is highly you can't do now, but he would take a cattle prod, and he would shock your chair in order to wake you up uh, if you weren't paying attention in your class. Now, that does, stuff does not fly at all today, and please don't think that was ever a good thing. But it was how they were trying to wake them up to get their attention. And sometimes that we're a little bit like that, where God has to shock us. God has to throw things our way to wake us up to the reality of our condition before him. We might realize what it is that we have done and where we're at. Uh, as I've gone through the scriptures and I've seen over time that there are certain times where God really does speak to us in ways where it couldn't be beyond anything else. He just hymns us in in such a place that we have no other choice but to pay attention. One of those greatest examples of that is actually from the life of King David. King David was a man after God's own heart. He led a very full life. Uh, yet he, he, I mean, he was a warrior. He was a poet. He was a musician. He was a, a friend. And yet he was still capable of great sin. And if you are familiar with the story of David, then you know full well the sins that he had committed within his life. And there's one one psalm that he wrote, which is just such a reflection of feeling him in and being at a place where God was really trying to get his attention, and that's in Psalm 32. And I, and I love this passage that I wanted to share with you before we go on into Habakkuk, because I believe that they are uh, kind of impacting one another, where David says, for when I kept silent, he's talking about silent for his sins, that he kept them in, he held on to it. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And he, he, he says that God hemmed me in into such a place that I couldn't even have, uh, there was not even a physical strength for me anymore. I was weak because God had hemmed me in. God was trying to get my attention. God was convicting me so much that I couldn't find any rest. Now, that could be, easily us. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that. I know I have. Where I'd sinned and I know that I had sinned, that I didn't want to talk to God. I didn't want to be around God. I, wanted, I didn't want to be around God's people. I didn't want to read God's word. And I, but yet I felt this conviction upon me that I couldn't shake. Like his hand was there just pressing. My mentor uh, once told me, he said, because we were talking and he was discipling me and telling me that there are times where you need to make restitution in your life for past sins you've done. And I asked him the question, how far do I go back in my life? And he said, don't try to beat yourself up trying to think of everything, but whatever the Holy Spirit puts his finger on, 
that I remember that, that his finger on, meaning that if there's something that God has put in your life that he's pressing it on you that you know you need to deal with. And here, I think the hand of God is pressing on the heart of David, pressing on the heart of Habakkuk too, convicting him. And what do you do when you feel that? I mean, have you ever felt that way? Where you feel God's conviction upon your heart for stuff that you have done, stuff that you know you shouldn't have done, or other things that you know you should have and you didn't, sins you've held on to. What do you do when you feel that? What do we do? See, Habakkuk, we're going to see through his prayer what one of the things that we are to do. Because Habakkuk was devastated. God had just pronounced judgment on his people. And, and not only pronounced judgment, but he declared that the Chaldeans or Babylonians were going to be the ones that, to come and bring this judgment, much to the frustration and pain of Habakkuk. He couldn't imagine that God would discipline his people in this way with the people that were even worse than they were. And then God says, not only am I going to discipline them, but I'm also going to punish the Chaldeans. And now he is disturbed. Actually, this word for shigioneth there, it's the idea, of, it's a musical intonation. It's like wild and crazy moving. It's, it's a very uh, like emotional song, a prayer that he's, he's doing. He is so shaken up that he's having to pour out his heart to God. And we're going to get a view of that and see how he pleads before God. And we're going to just give an introduction to that prayer today. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to expand on the thoughts that he has after he makes this prayer. But as we do so, I'm going to ask that each one of us open our heart and ask God speak to us. Ask him seriously to say, is there something in my life that is offensive to you, O Lord? Some of you and some of us here today I know are feeling the hand of God upon our lives. Maybe you didn't even want to come today. You, were, you didn't want to talk to God. You didn't want to be around his people. But God is bringing you in, not to punish you, but to get your attention because of his love for you. He doesn't want you to continue on in your sin, but he wants you to repent of it and turn back to him. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask God by his Holy Spirit to speak to us as we open and expouse his word for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, you are God. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture, but we can become so rebellious so quickly whether it's going off and indulging in all kinds of sin or exalting and becoming self-righteous, that we forget what it means to humble ourselves before you and truly love people the way that you love people. Oh, Lord, our God, today I pray for each one of us, no matter where we are at in our relationship and walk with you, that you speak to us through the power of your word that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword that it's able to cut us to the depth of our being. Oh, Lord, please touch us, speak to us, and transform us. Let us not go forth from this place the same that we are, but may we see you high and lifted up, and may we go forth changed, transformed, having the chains of sin and self broken on our lives by the power of your name. So speak to us, glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's jump right into our passage, shall we? We've come to verse 1 where Habakkuk is beginning a prayer to God. And I said before, remember, he is disturbed. God had decreed that he was going to bring judgment on both Judah and the Chaldeans, otherwise known as the Babylonians. 
and he was feeling God's hand. And rather than run away from God or shake his fist at God, which most of us do, we have this tendency to run away. We don't want to deal with him. We don't want to, to serve him. We don't want it to do what he wants us to do, a little bit like Jonah. Jonah had something that God wanted him to do, and he ran away from that. And many of us are the same way. We try to run away. Or some shake their fists. How dare you do this? And we become a credulous before him. But that's not what Habakkuk does. He felt God's hand. And rather than want to run away or shake his fist at God, he ran to God in an attitude of prayer. Let's begin at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigionoth. Uh, and again, this word, Shigionoth, it's used twice. First as an introduction to Psalm 7, and then here. And it means go astray, real, and probably is referring to a wild, passionate song with rapid changes of rhythm. And there are certain songs that really mean a lot to us. They represent a time in our lives that, uh, of, of something that really hardship that we went through or a love that we had. I mean, think about that. What is your favorite song? Now, when I ask that question to several different people, uh, people say several different things to me. They say that he had, the, the song could be a, a love song. They want to know, what's the genre? You want to know about love songs or a fun song or uh, just a song from your teenage years, whatever it might be. But think about that song that you love, that you hear, that represents that time in your life where it was a great deal of hardship. Whatever it might be. And here, that's what he's doing. He's, in essence, creating a song prayer to the Lord. So this word shigioneth is used twice. And it's, it's speaking, in essence, for him. And it's not just a prayer, but it's a plea. And see, when we sense God's hand upon us, we need to make sure that we lay out our pleas before him. That's the first point within your notes. He lays out his plea, his, his issue that he has with God, or the issue with the situation. He's not blaming God. He's not accusing God. He is actually pleading with God to be merciful in the midst of his judgment. And God longs for us to do that. Long, God longs for us in the midst of even the trials and the, and the consequences of our actions that we are experiencing. He wants us still to come to him. Uh, as, we heard from the, as we heard preached a, a few weeks ago from Psalm 46, which has become a huge verse just for me personally. God is a refuge and God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge and strength, not becomes our strength. He is our strength when we're in trouble. God, even in the middle of trouble, he wants us to come to him. He wants us to, to cling to him, to turn to him. God wants us to present our request to him. I was reminded of this yesterday when a, a pastor friend of mine, uh, actually we were at the football, the, the uh, West, I don't know what that was. What would he call that? The The what? The, the jamboree. We were at the jamboree, and I was talking with a pastor friend of mine, and, and I, he asked me if he saw me. I was riding my bike a while ago, and I said, yeah, I saw you. You were driving a Mercedes. I said, man, I need to be part of your denomination. You get a Mercedes. And he laughed, and he said, you know, let me tell you the story about this car. It's, he goes, it's an old Mercedes. I know. I'm just giving you a hard time. And, and he said, but God supplied that car for our family. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, we were having a hard time. Our, our other car is just is, uh, is rusted out. It's ready to quit, and my, my kids are, are ready to drive, and, and we need another automobile around the house. And so uh, I was talking to my, my, uh, my wife and my kids, and I said, we need to pray about this. And my kids said, we need to pray about a car, Dad? Shouldn't we be praying for, like, world peace? Uh, something like that, nothing, something so minor. And he goes, yeah, but God cares about the things that we go through in our lives. And, and I told him, I said, yeah, and besides, even our big requests to God are actually really small to him. No matter what they are, 
We should lay them out before him. He wants to have that relationship with us. He wants to communicate with us. We shouldn't look at God as a cosmic genie or ATM, but we do recognize that he is a benevolent father, and he is the only one who can truly help us. And besides, all of our, again, so-called major requests are still small in his sight. But what, what does God tell us to do in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7? Do not be anxious about anything. What do you have anxiety in? You know, there's a difference between eagerness and anxiety. Anxiety is looking at the future with fear. Eagerness is looking at the future with hope. But here it says, don't be anxious about the future. Don't be anxious about anything that you're facing. No matter what your financial issue is, relational issue is, uh, with your children, that health report, don't be anxious. Don't be worried. But in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends or surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So God wants, to lay out, wants us to lay out our pleas for him. But how do we pray? How do we plea? We, we have this understanding today within our, our current generation that if you just pray, that's enough. No, 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 no. I mean, there are certain ways that we are to pray according to. God gives us guardrails or, or uh, uh, lines, in other words, that we're to be between when we pray. That we are to pray, first of all, according to his word. Look at verse 2 again. Oh, Lord, I've heard the report of you. Where did he hear the report? It had, been, it had been passed on from generation to generation as they had relayed the word of God and what God had done through his people time and time again. And we have to pray according to the very word of God. The problem that we have is that we don't read the word of God and we don't know the word of God. If statistics are correct, we are living in the uh, greatest generation of biblical illiteracy that has ever been known. However we are also living in a generation where we have more information at our fingertips than has ever been known before. Several years ago, I was interviewing for a uh, radio uh, Bible teacher job in Nebraska. And at this location, uh, they had this, what they called the Center for Bible Engagement. And the vision of the founder of this, or the, the head of the ministry at the time, um, and there were flags, American flags everywhere, and, and he, his goal was to get a Bible into the hands of every American. That was what his goal was. And uh, as they, they got ready to do this, they wanted to, their, their CEO wanted to do kind of a survey. He came from a survey uh, background to see, is this what is really needed within uh, the United States? And they surveyed about 30,000 people. You know what they found? Overwhelmingly, people had Bibles. People had multiple Bibles. The problem was that they needed Bibles. The problem was is they weren't reading the Bibles that they had. That's the issue. So many of us today take this for granted. I mean, there are people that travel. If you ever read of Brother Yoon, that when he got just a page of the Bible, he would travel days to go find another page just to be able to read it. And yet we let it just sit dust like it's nothing. I mean, this book is banned in other countries. That if you would go in and put it in your suitcase, you could be possibly arrested. This is the most smuggled Bible, I mean, the smuggled book in the entire world, the most purchased book, the most stolen book, the most controversial book. This book is banned in so many different nations. And yet we let it set all the time. And God is saying, no, I want you to to read my word so you know me. Not just to read the word, but to, to get to know him. And if we're to make pleas, that's what he was doing. He was making a plea based upon what he knew of God's word and God's ways how God had operated in the past. Many of us are more familiar with what's going on in Charlottesville 
and going on in our political uh, world right now than we know about the Bible itself. We know more about just small things. We more know about celebrities' lives and stars on Instagram or YouTubers than we know about the God of the world. And we need to make sure that we correct that understanding to know his ways. God has revealed himself to us. I I struggle with this personally. Uh, I I like to read through the news and read the headlines and what's going on. And and sometimes when I get up, the first thing you do is just grab the phone and you flip through the news of the day rather than let God speak to me. Something that I have to fight with all the time. And I remember hearing a sermon by Warren Worsby, who is a retired pastor. He used to be the pastor of Moody Church, was a Bible teacher for several years, written over 150 books, just this amazing, amazing uh, preacher. And he once said this. He couldn't believe how people would go to the news first. And he said, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to read about what the world says about God before I read what God says about the world? That's so true. Why would I want to read about what the world says about God? before I read what God says about the world. That we need to let God dictate. And God reveals how he interacts with men and women. As we examine lives, uh, such, uh, lives such as Abraham, or Isaac, or Jacob, or Moses, or Elijah, or uh, we look through, the, uh, through Jesus, or the Apostle Paul, or through Peter, we look through all these different characters, and we see how God operated and worked within their lives. We see what God values, what God uh, what God hates as well. It's just like with my children. You know, they say you find out how good of a parent are with your first child because your first child ends up teaching your other children. I don't know if you've experienced that. Some of you are like, forget about it, I'm done. <laughs> you might have had a very difficult time, but it's true. It's very true. I see some of the things that I did with my first child that I, that I see her do with the other children, and then I'm like, man, that was a mistake. How do I correct that? But she, they learn about what is valuable through the other kids. One time, um, we were sitting at the dinner table, and um, my, one of my children said something that really made me angry. You ever had that moment where you get really angry with your kid? And I sat there, and I got quiet. And my oldest daughter knew that I was really mad. And she could tell, and she just stared at me, and she looked at her, her sister and went, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Because <laughs> they kept talking, and I was getting ready to just blow up because I was so angry at them at the moment. But see, she'd learned. And so she could pass that on to the next one, and the next child would know, and then the next child would know. And see, we do that by looking at other people's lives. We learn by watching those who have gone ahead of us. Just like with your job, whatever it is you do, someone showed you how to do something first, and then you learn how to do it as well. And see, we see that with, with God. He's laid out through the lives of different saints how he works, what he values, and his ways how we can approach God, how not to approach God, that we see everything within the Old Testament was done for our benefit as a warning to us, but also to enable us to have hope and pursue in a greater way. So his word reveals his ways, and Habakkuk knew that. He knew that. See, God's word reveals his ways and reveals what he wants. He wants See, anyone who has ever played a board game knows that you can't play the game until you know the rules. You don't know what is good or bad until you read the instructions. When we read the Word of God, we learn God's ways and what He wants from us. We learn what is valuable, what is bad, and we learn what is pleasing to Him. The Lari people of the Congo have a saying, the one who speaks when he is hungry receives assistance. God wants to come to us to come to Him seeking Him in faith. 
It's only the person who knows their need and articulates it is the one who gets that need met. Now, let's look at verse 2 again. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. He had heard a report of who God is and what he has done. And it's through reading the word that we learn of God's work and how he has operated in the past. Now, I know I just articulated a part of this, but that's the next part I want you to write down. We see how God operated in the past. The past is a motivator. As the historian has said, those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. As we read the Bible, we can see how he, was, how he has worked, how he worked through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and through his workings with Israel. We cannot look through various movements of God throughout the centuries and we can see what God, what worked and what did not, what God valued and what he did not. But as we read the word, some people just see the Bible as history. Is the Bible just more, is it, is it more than a history lesson or is it just a history book? It's much more than history. See, it is the living record of how God has operated in the past and what he expects from us now. Now, as I said before, there are, we have now more knowledge than we've ever had before, but what we lack is wisdom. If we want to know something, just Google it, right? You can just Google it. Whatever you want to know, learn about it. I want to know about how Mitch Trubisky did last night in the game. I can Google that. I want to learn about some obscure football player or, 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 or a musical or a song or a composer or how to sew this or how to build that. I can go on Google and find out any information that I want. But what the Internet cannot show us is wisdom. How to use the knowledge that we have. And see, the Word of God gives us wisdom. And he understood that. Habakkuk understood that. That God had revealed his Word and his ways. And it gave him Give wisdom. See, when we know what the Word of God says, it gives us a firm foundation to live by. See, right now, there's a, for example, there's a great deal of conversation about race going on in our world today. I mean, there were, we had the different um, uh, gatherings this past week. You see the news. The news is crazy right now. And it seems that every news agency is just putting up headlines, putting up headlines. Not necessarily, and I've learned not to trust news agencies. I don't know about you. But I don't trust everything that's always put out in the news because it's always somebody trying to magnify something or minimize something else. But I do know this, that when I go to the Word of God, the Word of God tells me that there's always going to be craziness going on around me. But only in Him do I find peace. And I see what's going on. And there's a, talk, a lot of talk about race within our world today. And what the Word of God tells me, though, is that there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, that all are one in Christ Jesus, that all are equally made in the image of God, and that for a believer in Christ, that should have no place. And that as believers in Christ, that we, if we are wise and want to live according to His Word, then we can't just privatize our faith, but we must reach out and help those that are most vulnerable among us. See, these are things that the Word of God teaches and shows. They're not sound bites that can always grasp us and enrage us, but they give us rest, they give us peace. And when we see how God has acted in the past and see that God hated racism in the past, the book of Jonah is a great example of that. Jonah wanted to go out. I mean, he didn't want to go and do what God wanted him to do. He hated the Ninevites so much that he ran in the different direction. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I care about them. See, we have to understand, how did God operate in the past? What does the Word of God teach us now we are to live in the here and now? And that means, how do we respond when God's disciplining hand is upon us? See, whenever we see how God has acted in the past, that should give us faith. It should give us faith to know that God is working. Our belief in God and His work should grow. 
As we were a staff, we're discussing Habakkuk. The prophet Jonah came up, and one of our pastors remarked that Habakkuk is greater than Jonah in many ways. Even though you may not know him, you know the story of Jonah, but you may not know the story of Habakkuk. But the reason was is that Jonah ran away when he was confronted with what God wanted him to do, but Habakkuk ran to God and pleaded for God to show mercy in the midst of his judgment. That should increase our faith. Which is why he said, in the midst of the years, revive it. In our time, revive your work, God. In the midst of the years, make it known. Show yourself in our day and age. But in your wrath, remember mercy. Remember mercy. See, the Jews deserved God's wrath. The Chaldeans deserved God's wrath. But Habakkuk remembered that God was merciful. So you may feel that you're under God's disciplining or punishing hand right now. But know that there is mercy. Mercy is the withholding what you deserve. If you run to God, you will find that he is a merciful God. Time and time again throughout the Psalms, we read the tear-stained words of the psalmist crying out with pleas for mercy. Our God is a merciful God when we come to him broken, fully agreeing with his assessment of who we are, acknowledging our sin and turning from it. And the supreme act of mercy was seen in Jesus Christ, our Savior and God. He is the one who was crucified for us. God placed our sins upon him, and he experienced our judgment. He experienced all of that so we could obtain mercy. God has to punish sin, and someone has to pay our debt. Who will it be? Only Jesus was found worthy to pay it. Thank God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And knowing how God works in the past should give us hope for the future. Hope for the future. God will forgive our sin if we come to him in true repentance and faith through Jesus. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. As, the, as it says within Proverbs chapter 23, verse 17 through 18, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will be not cut off. Meaning that God's got a, God God's, will give you a future. God will, God will enable and be there for you in the midst of all of the judgment you're experiencing. And that is what Habakkuk was banking on. That he was banking on God being merciful and giving him a future. He will forgive. That's power right there. Think about that. I mean, have you ever been in need of forgiveness? Sometimes I don't think people really understand the depth of the cross till they understand the reality and the depth of their sin and how imprisoned they were really in it. Sometimes I think we, I mean, we do. We think that we're better than we are. And we don't, we fail to understand how chained we really were. When we understand how totally depraved and how much we were God's enemies, only then can we truly understand the power of the cross and what it does in our lives and the forgiveness that God gives to us. I mean, who can forgive sins? No politician, no person, no philosophy, no job, no career. You can get a PhD and that doesn't guarantee you a future or forgiveness. It doesn't matter what accomplishment you might have, what applause you might get, or how much well-known, how well-known you might be. The only guarantee we have in a future comes from God himself. And the only one who can forgive us is God and should cause us to fear. Fear. Now, why fear? Look at verse 2 again. O Lord... I have heard the report of you and your work. O oh Lord, do I fear. Why do we fear? Why did Habakkuk fear? He was afraid because he knew that God had to judge sin. 
but he also knew that God was merciful. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, do we fear God in that way? The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We fear God because he controls the world. He controls our very breath. And he is the one who can truly forgive us of our sins. This is what I love and is scared about. Psalm 30, 130, verse 4. If, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He's the only one that can forgive. No one else can forgive. A great example of this comes when some friends brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed. If you're familiar with the story, it's in Mark chapter 2. Some of you may not, but the story goes like this. There was, uh, Jesus had already attracted a great following. Uh, people were coming to him because they knew that he could heal. And in our world today, I mean, in our world today, we don't realize this. We don't see this out in front of us. We don't understand the, what our, um, our illnesses bring just to us personally but, and to the community at large. You were isolated socially especially if you had a skin disease, something like that, that would limit you. You had to be from the community. So it wasn't just a physical thing. It, it limited it. It affected your social life, your, your status within the community, your ability to provide, all of these different things. And we have hospitals and doctors and insurance companies and all this. They had none of that. None of that. And so they, they would become very desperate. And so to find that someone could heal was a huge deal. And people would come to, them with, come to him with all of their illnesses and all their ailments. And these guys had heard about Jesus, and they were good friends with the guy who was paralyzed. And so they said, we need to take him to Jesus. He's the only one that can help him, the only one that can transform him. And so they, they pick him up on his mat, and they carry him. We don't know how many friends that there were, but they try to get into the building, and it's packed. I mean, the house is packed out, standing room only, shoulder to shoulder. Nobody can move, and they can't get anywhere near to Jesus, and one of them has an idea. Let's see if we can get up on the roof of the house, take off some of the tiles, and then lower him down. And so they do that. They take him up. They, come, they get right to the top of it. They kind of judge where Jesus would be standing at. And they pull out the tiles, and they lower their friend on the mat down to Jesus. And Jesus sees them, and he marvels at their faith. And this is what he says. He says to the, the man in the, on the mat, your sins are forgiven. Now, isn't it strange that he says your sins are forgiven? He doesn't say, take up your mat and walk. He just says your sins are forgiven. And it caused the religious teachers who were there because a, a great deal of frustration. Why, how could he do that? No one can forgive sins but God alone. And then Jesus says this. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We never saw anything like this. We don't, we, don't, we don't get this picture today. I mean, you know, when there are certain things that come on the horizon, certain musicians or athletes, they do something that everybody wants to see. Uh, I remember when, again, Michael Jordan became such a huge athlete, people wanted to, to watch him because he was doing things that people had never seen before. Not, I've never seen anybody play ball like this. Or when Devin Hester was running back touchdowns, and they'd say, I've never seen anybody do what he's doing all the time. And it electrified people. And here it's the same kind of picture. We've never seen anybody, I mean, anybody do this. No one's ever done this before, not in the history of the world. What's going on? And it, it caused him to become even more famous. But that's not what Jesus was about. Jesus was trying to say, if I can do the seen and make him walk, then I can also do the unseen, which is forgive. 
That's a big deal. We, we don't grasp this. I mean, think about it. What are you going to need? When you stand in the very presence of God, what is he going to say to you? What is he going to articulate? I mean, is he going to recite your sins? Is he going to know your sins? What's it going to be that condemns you? It's your sin that's going to condemn you. What do you need? You need forgiveness. He's the only one. No one else. No other system. No other work can forgive except him. And that should cause us to fear that he controls our very life within his hands. Understand who he is, how powerful he is. That should cause us to fear. Now, what I admire about Habakkuk's prayer is his belief that there could be change. See, prayer is a way to know God, but it is also the potential for change. See, that's what prayer is. Did you know that? I mean, we talk about communion with God, and it is that, and it is a way of laying out our struggles and sins before Him. It is that. But embedded within prayer is the hope and the potential that things can be different than they are. That God would intervene. See, this is what I think the church has lost its ability to understand. We look at it more as a therapy rather than understanding it the tool for transformation within the world. See, you want to know why your son or your daughter or your loved one, your, your spouse, why God hasn't changed their life? Are you praying for them? Do you believe that God will change them? Because ultimately, it's not going to be about how you can convince them. It's only God himself encountering them and them being changed. And that's what your prayer needs to be for, is that they would encounter the living God and he would transform them. It's not about how better you can make it. or I mean, there are certain tools and things we can do, but it's ultimately God who is the one who changes the heart. And that's prayer is ultimately the understanding of the potential for change. Warren Worsby once again said this, Nothing paralyzes our lives like the attitude that things can never change. We need to remind ourselves that God can change things. Outlook determines outcome. If we see only the problems, we will be defeated. But if we see the possibilities in the problems, we can have victory. How true is that? How true is that? If we see only the problems, we'll be defeated. And, and you know this. You've, we've all done this. That person is never going to change. They're never going to change. You know what you're saying by saying that? Is you're removing God from the equation. They can only change if God reveals himself to them. They can only change if God transforms their heart. They can only change if. We have to, we have to put God back in. I invite God to change. See, that's what he says in the latter part of verse 2. He understood this. Even after God had decreed judgment, that things aren't going to change. But even in the midst of judgment, he was pleading for God's mercy. Look at the latter part of verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Please remember mercy. The NIV puts it this way. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. He was asking God to stay his judgment or be merciful to them as he had been in the past. God, in the midst of this, what you decreed, I know it's going to go on, but please, you've given me this opportunity to speak to you. Please change. Please, please stop. And God responds. Now, sometimes he, he, 
he allows the consequence to go forward, and sometimes he stops his hand. Think about it. In the story of Jonah, after God had decreed judgment on the city of Nineveh, he's to go forth preaching back and forth. And, and he says, God's going to bring judgment. God's going to bring judgment. What happened? The people humbled themselves and repented. And God stayed his hand. And that really bothered Jonah because Jonah knew God would be merciful and he didn't want him to be. He wanted him to bring judgment. But here we see that he's pleading that God would intercede. Think about Abraham when he is walking with the, the two angels and he's walking with the Lord as they're getting ready to go to Sodom and to destroy it. And he's like, God's like, I'm going to go check and see if this is true and I'm going to destroy it. And he says, please, Lord, let me just speak to you for a moment. I know you're a merciful God. But if there are, are 50 righteous people there, will you destroy the city? No, for the sake of 50, I won't. Please, don't kill me. But what about if there's 45? I won't destroy it for 45. What about 40? What about 40? For 40, I won't. What about 30? What about 20? And gets down to 10. And God says, for the sake of 10 righteous persons, I won't destroy it. And we know the story that there weren't 10 righteous people there, and the city was destroyed. But see, he was, he was pleading for God's mercy. He was asking God to, to be merciful in his time. Another great example is King David. King David, you know the story of King David. If you don't, let me tell you. Uh, David, a great king. Um, he w- it was the spring, when the, t- the time when the kings were going out to war. He didn't. He saw uh, Bathsheba bathing on the top of her roof, lusted after her, inquired after her, ended up having her come to his quarters. He ends up sleeping with her. They have an affair. It's a scandal. Uh, she sends word back that I'm pregnant. And so he then has to try to do a cover-up, and because Bathsheba is the wife of one of his, in essence, secret service agents and one of his loyal uh, men, you get a picture of that when you see how he reacts when he's trying to cover it up. He's a very righteous man. And see, you see then uh, David trying to get Uriah to sleep with her so then the child would be known to be his, and it doesn't work, it doesn't work, doesn't work. So he resorts to the last uh, thing that he could do is basically orchestrating the circumstances which results in Uriah's death, and Uriah dies. And then she mourns for a little bit, he brings her into his home, and now she's his wife. No problem, all worked out well. But it says very, something very fascinating. It says the thing that he did displeased the Lord. God saw it. That's all that mattered. It didn't matter what anybody else saw. God saw it. So it, deple- it, it displeased the Lord, and God sends Nathan the prophet to rebuke David and decree judgment on David because of it, and the child that will be born to this union will die. That's what happens. That's the story. But it's, what's, even, what's cool to me, though, is seeing David's response. David confesses his sin. Psalm 51 is a record of his repentance before God. But yet we also see what he does as after he hears of it and what he does in 1 Samuel chapter 22, or chapter 11, verse 22. And actually what had occurred is David went into the house of the Lord because the child that was born became sick. He intercedes with God. He pours his house before God. He doesn't just stay in his judgment, but he's pleading for God's mercy. He fasts and he prays and he doesn't leave the temple. He won't eat anything, no matter how much his counselors try to get him to eat. Six days goes by, and the child finally dies. And he sees his counselors talking on the side. They're whispering because they don't want to tell him this because they saw his reaction while the child's alive. It's going to be worse if the child is dead. He's going to wail. He's going to freak out. Could hurt himself. Could hurt people around him. And they're whispering, and David goes, is the child dead? They said, yes, he's dead. He gets up. He takes a shower. Puts some essential oils on. He ends up going to, he worships, in the, worships, in, uh, worships the Lord, then he goes back home, and he calls for some food, and he eats, and he freaks out his counselors. They come to him, and they're like, this is not what we expected you to do. 
And he says to them, this is what he says, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? Now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. But it's the first part of that, verse 22, where he says, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and the child may live? Even in the midst of his judgment, God will still be merciful. And he might pull back the consequences or he might go forward to it, but I'm going to call on him because I know either way there's nothing I can do to change it except pray before him and plead with him to be merciful to me. Because only in God is there that potential for change, meaning that God can change our circumstances. See, God has given us prayer as a hotline for our lives. Whenever we're in trouble, we can call on him. He makes himself accessible to us because of what Jesus has done. In the U.S., we have hotlines for many things. Suicide prevention for victims of uh, of sexual or domestic abuse. But the greatest hotline is one is given to us in prayer. We do not pray to simply hear our own thoughts. We pray because God has promised to work on our behalf. And that is a tremendous and powerful tool. It is a powerful tool provided one knows how to use it well. The power is not in the prayer itself, but in the God to whom the prayer is addressed to. The Scottish Christian reformer John Knox was an opponent of Mary, Queen of Scots. And she is purported to have said of him, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Can it be said of you that someone fears your prayer? Let me ask you that. If, if fear was in proportion to your prayer life, how much fear would there be? How strong is your prayer life? It's a question I ask myself a lot. See, God has given us a hotline that we don't use because prayer gives a, what prayer gives is really a request for help to invoke God into our lives. I like what John Piper has written. He said this, Prayer is the walkie-talkie on the battlefield of the world. It calls on God for courage. It calls in for troop deployment and target location. It calls in for protection and air cover. It calls in for firepower to blast open a way for the word. It calls in for the miracle of healing for the wounded soldiers. It calls in supplies for the forces. And it calls in the needed reinforcements. This is the place of prayer on the battlefield of the world. It is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. And one of the reasons it malfunctions in the hands of so many Christians is that they have gone absent without leave, AWOL. Prayer is for us to call on God. It is God's hotline for help, and prayer is a reminder that there can still be hope. See, even in the midst of judgment, he was relying, he had hope that God would respond. I love what Tim Keller, uh, retired pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, said. Prayer is rebellion against the world's status quo. I love that. Prayer is rebellion against the way that the world is operating. Are we in need of God's help? Do we need God to stay his hand? Do we need God to break the chains of our lives and the sin that's hold on to us? I mean, do you feel that you're without hope? Then run to the cross. Run to God. We're in desperate need of God's intercession in our country and in our church. With everything that we have going on in our world today, nothing's going to solve that. No senate, no leader, no, no president. No one is going to save any, no one is going to transform any of this except God himself if he intercedes. That's all. And we've forgotten God. We go to so many other things than God. 
So many of us bury our heads in the sand trying to busy ourselves with so many things and we have forgotten the tools that God has given us. God, forgive us. See, some of these conflicts that are occurring may be because we have turned our back on God. We trampled His Word and His commands. And yet we still expect God to be there doing everything for us. But God is calling us to repent, to call upon Him in repentance and faith. We're going to take a moment to pray. I, wanna, I really want to, I've really felt convicted about this this past week. We don't pray enough within our services as in a corporate body. We don't. And I'm, I'm floored by this. And it's really, really tearing me up inside. Because I don't think that there's, there's no hope if we don't call on God. And how we in the West call on God makes me sick. I mean, what is it going to take to wake us up as a church here in America? Is the whole world just going to go to hell in a handbasket and you have to have someone get ready to haul you off to prison before we wake up to the reality of who he is? Is that what it's going to take? Do we have to have a gunman break in the door and kick it down? Because that could happen. It's getting to that point. And you think, oh, that's never going to happen. Look around. I mean, it's the frog in the kettle. The water is heated up and the church is just sitting there going, wow, it's warm in here. Where are we? Where are we calling on God? Are we reading his word? Are we living holy lives? Are we purifying ourselves before him? What we want is really the flashbang. We want the, the, the real fun stuff. We want everybody to make us feel good. This is not a feel-good thing, man. There is a cancer, a spiritual cancer that's going on in our churches and in our country. And the only solution of that is God himself. And if we don't turn to him, we don't ask him to transform hearts and minds, that we're just going to go along with the culture, going on the waves of destruction. But it's only with God directly intervening in the lives of people. And that does not happen without God's people praying and the hearts of people changing. It does not happen. Nowhere in recorded spiritual, scriptural history do you ever see God just suddenly showing up without his people humbling themselves and praying. Why do we think that he's going to do that now? We can have a great band. We can have great instrument. We can have great tech. Wonderful things. But they don't change a heart. They don't change a heart. We can have all these great attitudes, perfect parking lot, nice building. Whoa, but that does not transform a sinner. God can use those things and bring someone in, but without people praying, humbling themselves, and clinging to God, it does not work. God is the one that has to break the chains on a person's heart and mind. Our world has become deaf and dumb because our church has become deaf and dumb to the things of God. And without us waking up, without us doing what God has called us to do, then there's not going to be a great revival within our midst. We sang a song, I see a great revival, and I sit there and shake my head. I'm singing the words going, is there really going to be a great revival? Not the way it's going right now. Not the way it's going right now. What do we have to, what do, we have to do? Do I have to stand on my head to wake people up? I don't know. I, 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 I feel like Ezekiel sometimes, not that I would put myself to Ezekiel, but we, I look at the bones of the church and God says to me, son of God, can these bones live? Surely, oh God, you know, because I can't do it. Only God waking up people. That only happens when people pray. If my people shall humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, We're going to pray. We're going to pray a lot more in our services, Lord willing. We're going to pray for the persecuted church in the next few months. We're going to be praying for different individuals. We're going to pray for people. And we're going to do this little practice of prayer we introduced a couple weeks ago. And I'm going to put a little slight different turn on it. This is called in Korean, Tongsong Kido. 
And as I said last time, it is not a new martial art. Tung Song Kido is when people pray out loud. And this is actually how most people pray in the world over, just not here in the United States. Now, I know that some of you might find this difficult, especially if you like to be really silent and quiet. Uh, forgive me. I understand different people enjoy different things. But today we're going to pray out loud. And I, what I want us to do is I want us to call on God to intercede in the life of our church and in our country. If you haven't seen what's going on, even in our church, we've had some people that are struggling in their marriages, they're faltering. We've had protesters over the past several weeks for different things that have uh, uh, gone on at Sugar Grove campus here. Uh, and I, I'm more reminded more than ever that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, powers, and authorities in the heavenly realms. And if we don't call on God, then it's not going to matter. So I'm going to ask you to stand up. These guys are going to play. And I'm also going to ask, uh, I'm going to ask uh, two of our elders to come up. I'm going to ask Tom come up. I'm going to have John come up. And, it, and we're going to pray out loud here in a moment as they're going to sing too. They're, the band's going to sing. You can sing along if you want. But I want you to pray. And if you need someone to pray for you, these men are up here to pray for you right now. And it might be a sin that you're struggling with. It might be a thing, a, a difficulty in your marriage. It could be a financial issue. It could be a health issue. It could be a, whatever it might be that's just pulling down your soul and that's hurting you. I'm going to encourage you to come forward and have this men are just going to pray for you. They're going to lay hands on you and they're going to ask God to just be with you. And, and I want us all, as, as those guys are praying and they're singing in the background, I want us all just to call on God. And I'm, I'm going to start us off in the prayer. I'm going to get about 10 seconds in then I want you to pray. And I want you to just, if you want to, if you're comfortable, just lift your hands up to God. Actually, that's how the Jews would pray. Often we want to bow our head and put our hands together. Couldn't squeeze a blessing in there. But they would just lift their hands up, lift their eyes up to God, and they would call on God to intercede. And I'm going to ask us to call on God to intercede in the life of our church, that he would transform the hearts and minds. And if there is someone that you know that needs to know who Jesus is, I want you to call on God on their behalf. I want you to intercede and ask God to put his, stay his hand of judgment on their life and that he might intercede and then he might awaken them to the reality of who he is. And then I'm gonna just going to let us pray. We're going to pray as they continue to sing. And I want us, I'm going to give you another prompt on how else we are going to pray. But we're going to ask God to intercede in the life of his church. And then, and then I'm going to give us another prompt and how I want us to pray. And then after a while, we're going to keep praying. And then I'm going to, to stop us and I'm just going to intercede with that, okay? Everybody understand? We're going to follow along best we can. If not, just try to, to follow along. But let me start us off, and then after I start, I want you to pray. Oh, Lord, our God, Lord, you are God. You alone are God. And you're the only one that can intercede in the life of our country and in our lives. Lord, we ask you to intercede in the life of our church. Now, you keep praying. Just lift your voice high to the Lord right now, wherever you're at. Don't worry about the people around you. Just lift your high voice up to God. Pray. Go ahead call out to God for that person that you want to, that you're saying, Lord, I need him to intercede in their life. Lord, I need you to intercede in her life. Lord, I need you to intercede in my life. Lord, please, I ask you to touch us. I ask you to be with us. So pray right now.
where that chain is, I want you to lift that up now. If there's a chain that's within your life that's keeping you bound in your sin or keeping you back from doing what God wants you to do, I want you to lay that out right now as we continue to to sing and pray. And if you need prayer, I ask you to just come up and, and get in line and have these men will pray for you. Let's take a moment to just call on him and lay out whatever that chain is. Ask him to break it, whatever it is in your life. that are living upright lives. 
Lord, may our words be filled with truth and may we have a holy boldness. We rebuke and bind the enemy who has sought to get such a presence and enslave so many different people's lives. And Lord, our God, we know that you were victorious and that you defeated him at the cross. And we ask, Lord, that you do not let any evil into this place, that you consecrate the lives of your people and that you transform them for the glory of your name and that you bring revival within our midst today. Lord, teach us to pray. Help us to pray for our families. Help us to pray for our neighbors and our co-workers. And Lord, help those words overflow from our hearts that we might speak truth to those around us, that your name might receive glory, they might be transformed, and you will break the chain that is on their life. Lord our God, we worship you. We long for your peace and your presence. We long for you to show yourself in our midst today. Bring revival just as you have done in the Old Testament when your people humbled themselves and they turned from their wicked ways. Lord, forgive us for our boredom. Forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for our indecisiveness. Forgive us for our rebellion. And Lord, awaken within us the truth of who you are as the Spirit of God enables us to pursue you. Lord, please transform hearts and minds. Draw people to the cross of Jesus Christ and glorify your name in our midst. Let's sing together and lift our voices as we remember how his power is broken and changed in our lives. His power in the name of Jesus. There is power. for your presence. We long for you to intercede in our lives. And Lord, as we get ready to go forth for the rest of our days, Lord, we pray that what we have experienced today, what your truth has told us, what your Holy Spirit has laid upon our hearts and our lives uh, may not be forgotten, but may be remembered, might be cherished, might be emblazoned upon our hearts and our minds, that we might go forth changed. Lord, transform us, speak to us, and use us. Remind us, Lord, that with you, everything is possible. That is impossible with men, is not impossible with God. We exalt your name. We ask you to speak to our hearts and speak to our lives. We pray you bless us and be with us. In Jesus' name.